Welcome to the Fezoro Podcast. No telling what you might find. Listen in on talks and discussions ranging from dream analysis to spiritual or psychological topics to some other things. Soak in the good vibes and thanks for joining us. You taught me how to speak, showed me what to eat, yeah, you gave me lots of friends. You showed me fire burns, you taught me tables turn, now I'm turning on the heat. Episode 7, entitled My Friend Darwin from a Talk I Led in a High School Class in the Czech Republic. It's been a really long time since I've published an episode. The reasons are multiple and diverse. I'm on Episode 7 here, and I'm still not sure exactly what my podcast is about. If Seinfeld is a show about nothing, my podcast still feels like it's a show about anything that happens to interest me. And I just sort of go along hoping it might interest others as well. But how can I cultivate a listenership? When from one episode to another, you don't really know what to expect. Problem for another day, I guess. But at this point, I just still feel the urge to continue podcasting. I really enjoy it, and at last I have some material and time, and I'm ready to start publishing again. If podcasting is a vanity project for me, and if I quit at some point in the future, I feel it will remain a deeply satisfying experience from which I have learned and grown. I have a few more episodes coming up in the pipe, which I feel you'll enjoy, and I hope you'll spread the word. Lately, I haven't had much luck getting interviews with people. On the other hand, I've had some speaking opportunities, the material from which I feel is worth publishing. This episode and the next will comprise recordings of two discussions I led recently in a school where I am serving as dorm parent in the Czech Republic called Townsend International. It's a Cambridge curriculum school founded on the principles of the Baha'i faith concerning the oneness of humanity, the primacy of independent thought, the harmony of science and religion, and the importance of a holistic education. I may talk more about this school in detail at some future point, but for now, I'm just living here, enjoying the life, and wanted to share some of the discussions I've had the privilege to guide. Today's episode is the first of two connected talks. I'll speak a bit about Charles Darwin's personality, his life's work, and how he has inspired me as a psychology student. In the next episode, I'll talk about the global ecological crisis the world is facing in terms of what it means for conscientious young people who want to survive the coming turmoil and to contribute to solutions to the problem my generation has laid at their feet. There are some connecting threads between these two talks, but the main one is that in some ways, all creatures on the planet comprise a single family whose destiny is intertwined and upon the love of which our fate may collectively depend. Thanks for dropping in, and welcome to Episode 7. How many students do we have? Are you kidding me? This is a small class. Wow. Well, that's very, that's very intimate. Okay, so I'm going to get a guinea pig out. Perfect. You know what it is, of course. Of course. I think everybody knows what it is. So... You can't, to me, you know, if possible, if you're going to talk about Darwin, you want to have like a critter, like a creature, right? Because that's where it all starts. It all starts with a deep interest in biology and in life. And I think that uh, with most people that are interested in those things, probably there's a bit of love in there in particular, right? It's a little different than the other sciences, okay? 
So Darwin, he was incredibly interested in creatures. And we're going to do a little bit of what Darwin was really good at. You know, in the modern age, there's a gigantic difference, uh, it seems to me, between the mentality of the greats like Darwin and the mentality of the modern scientist. The, the great scientists of, of history, they really used a lot of imagination and intuition and speculation. And they were very clear about that. And in our age, we're very cautious about those things. So I'm gonna encourage you to use your powers of imagination. And I've got a very specific evolutionary question for you about our friend here. Okay? You guys ready? Are your minds opening? Are you like going into your intuition? Can you feel your little inner, inner guinea pig and imagine? Okay? And um, because it's gonna require that. And that's what Darwin used a lot of, right? Paying a lot of attention to details, but with a lot of, of imagining himself in the position of an animal that he's trying to understand better. So my question for you is, firstly, has, have any of you fed this guinea pig? Okay. Have you noticed a behavior that happens when the guinea pig gets his food? Yes, yes. Have you ever wondered why he does that? Uh, just to protect food. Uh-huh. Uh, okay. So it's very, you guys are good at this, right? It's very easy for you. How would we explain it in terms of evolutionary theory? That's a little bit more of a leap, right? It's more advanced. This is what Darwin brought us is kind of saying, okay, well, that's why the guinea pig... You guys are really good because you put yourself in the position of the guinea pig. Why is he doing this? Darwin then says, how did the guinea pig become a creature that has this feature in his brain where when he gets a piece of food, he wants to go and hide? How did he become that way? We can understand the logic of why he's doing it. But how did he become that way? Because if you give me a piece of food, that's not my impulse. I don't go and hide. Right? Where did he get that instinct? Why did that happen? Does anybody have any idea? That's why Or maybe the guinea pig has had the experience of other babies trying to steal the food mm -hmm. at the same time he gets the food. So it's been an experience. Oh, that's a great point. So it may be that he learns this from habituation and from his community. But the bottom line is that in the guinea pig's world, the guinea pig's world is different than our world. And for this guinea pig, he's more likely to pass on his genes if he has this behavior, and he's less likely to pass it on if he doesn't. Because if he doesn't, maybe, like you suggested, maybe somebody's stealing his food. Or maybe, as someone else suggested, uh, a predator gets him because he's not paying attention. Right? So. His environment, his circumstance selects for the trait of wanting to hide when you get the food. But he doesn't necessarily think about it that deeply. He just feels like, I have food, I have to hide, right? So this is how, uh, how Darwin's uh, process of evaluating works. And uh, we have a lot of questions that we can ask about evolutionary theory that we can use the same kind of process, and we can, we can even scrutinize our own behavior, and that, that's referred to as evolutionary psychology. 
It's not a theory of psychology, but it's one explanation of how psychology works. Um, so now my personal interest in Darwin is, is many things. First of all, I'm that kind of person that I love creatures like I described, right? Since I was very little. So there's that aspect. Um, I was always interested in cavemen. I was interested to find out that at a certain point in history, there were many different kinds of early, early humans that lived together in the same world and they interacted with each other. And in fact, uh, Homo Neanderthal, we originally thought was an, a primitive, dumb ancestor of ours, but actually he had a bigger brain and he may have been smarter than us, right? Darwin would have been fascinated by this. But since I was young, I was very fascinated by ancient prehistory and dinosaurs and all of these things. And Darwin was alive when they were trying to really understand scientifically what all of this stuff meant that they would find in the geological record and these differences between animals. Um, but, but the thing is, is that something happened at a certain point. Basically, Darwin, he colonized my brain. He colonized my brain the way that a language colonizes your brain or the way that a best friend colonizes your brain. He becomes a, he becomes a part of me at a certain point, right? And, uh, and he is like a best friend. You know, the thing I can tell you, a uh, piece of advice, try not to be content with just learning about people. Today, you're learning about people. You're learning about someone. You're learning about Charles Darwin. But the reason I can tell you about Charles Darwin is because... I didn't just learn about him. I read his original works, many of them, not just Origin of the Species. And I did this because I got addicted to that friendship, okay? I became intellectually infatuated with him because I found somebody, when I'm reading his pages, I found somebody that's very loving. He's a very keen observer. The, the thought process that he had to me was very inspiring. And I just couldn't stop wanting to know more about him. Uh, the way that happened was I was in a biology class in college a few years back and I was really excited about the chapter on evolution. Always have been since I was a kid, like I said. And when we got to that chapter, we skipped over it. The teacher went from chapter 7 to chapter 9 or whatever, right? I was so disappointed. What do you think I did, right? I go to the teacher after class. I'm like, what did you do here? I was waiting this whole semester through boring you know, chemical equations of chemistry that I have no interest in, and now the part I'm interested in, you're gonna just skip it. And she said, I agree with you, I didn't wanna skip it, but it's too controversial because the culture, people have this problem with religion and, and uh, science, right? And I was like, ugh. So what I did was I read the chapter, and I had a, a, a similar disappointment, it wasn't as great, but my disappointment was that Darwin wasn't talked about very much, and the things that they were saying about Darwin to me, I thought were so interesting. So I had to even go further. So I went further than the class, and do that in life. Go further than the class sometimes, you know? And follow your heart and your interest. The, uh, there's an old Chinese proverb that interest is the best teacher, right? However dumb you are in a subject, if you're deeply interested in it, you'll get up to speed quickly if you're deeply interested in it. So follow that, okay? Don't just say, oh, well, whatever, we didn't cover it, and I don't have to do it. Um, so Darwin, honestly, uh, as far as I'm concerned, and you know, you can call me delusional, but he's one of my best friends. And this is the argument I would make about that. 
he wrote a lot of things. He wrote them very carefully. He wrote them very lovingly and with a great deal of patience, by which I mean he really put his heart and soul into it. He used his imagination. He worked his fingers to the bone. He was a very sick man his, his entire life. Uh, so he suffered a lot, but he still just persevered and wrote all of this to communicate a message. And who do you think he was talking to? In a sense, not really his colleagues, because a lot of them just thought he was crazy. In a sense, not so much necessarily even to anybody that was alive. He hoped that people would hear him, and they did eventually. But it really looked for a long time like nobody cared about what he was saying. Think about that. But he wrote this message anyways. And I'm reading it, and I can't get enough of it. It's like somebody, a brilliant, wonderful, sensitive person from a long time ago, wrote this love letter to me. Not to me personally, he doesn't know me. To anybody that cares to pick it up. And it's beautiful. And I'm here to say, for sure, as far as I'm concerned, you don't ever get to where Darwin has aged out and we've outgrown his theories. In the sense that his thought process and the history of it and his, his voice I'm telling you, he will teach you how to be a better scientist, okay? Now, one thing, some of you are gonna grow up to be scientists, and there's something that I will suggest to you, it's very controversial, you don't have to agree with me, and listen to your other professors form your own opinion, okay? There's, to me, much too much emphasis, at least in the United States. You're just testing one hypothesis, and it's just a yes or a no, right? You really have to go, I think, a lot further than that. Um, and Darwin, if he was alive today, it would be very difficult for him to say, no, no, I've got a huge, gigantic theory of everything. The bottom line of which, that guinea pig, he's your relative. That's too big for, uh, for hypothesis testing in the scientific calculator. You see what I'm saying? You see what I'm saying? Like, they had to really use their imagination, and he was an incredible scientist. I'll give you one, ex one example that I just love. Uh, and, and I'll preface this by saying that, in my mind, Darwin is also no less than the world's first bona fide psychologist. But because he was the first, there was no such term. I think it was Wilhelm Wundt, about six or eight years after Darwin, published uh, the behavior, something, some book called like The Behavior of Man and Animals. I forget the exact name. He wrote this book that basically was the world's first psychology book. He's looking at behavior. And this was six or eight years before Wilhelm Wundt. He's the guy responsible for the inception date of psychology as people recognize. But I think Darwin's the first psychologist. Why do I think that? Well, he writes this book about behavior and he has all of these grand speculations and ideas that turn out to be incredibly powerful intuitions. The vast majority of which, by the way, you couldn't test back then. Now we can, and it is insane how right he was about how many tiny, obscure details that he got to just by speculation. Do you ever wonder, where does the human kiss and hug come from? What is that? Why? What no other animals really, well, there's a few animals that almost kiss. But what's really going on there, right? It's an interesting question. It's kind of a psychological question, isn't it? As far as I know, he's the first person in history to ask it in a scientific way, in a scientific language. And here's what's cool. 
He asks it in a scientific language and what he comes up with as a response to this question, it's actually incredibly beautiful. It'll take your breath away. What he says is this. First, what he does, he has to send a survey when there's no internet to explorers and anthropologists and missionaries all over the planet and biologists, to people, colleagues that he has heard of or is aware of or knows, that are in touch with civilizations that have not been in contact with Western civilization to get his pure sample. And he has many questions related to many things that he's asking on this long survey. One of the things that he's asking about, one of the questions he has, he says this, do the people you're in contact with engage in any form of kissing and hugging? And could you describe it? That's basically how, I mean, it's not an exact quote, but that's kind of what he's asking, right? Is there some touching about the nose or the face or the lips or you know, where the faces are in contact? Is there some embracing going on? It turns out that it's not perfectly universal, but it's quite universal. So Eskimos, they kiss with the nose, traditionally. Okay, now they kiss like Westerners because we, they've learned it from us. And there are many different cultures that experience kissing and hugging in a different way. But almost all cultures have this, and it means the same thing. So, okay. That's just a fact. What does he do with this fact? He's using his imagination and his intuition. And he says this, he says, what happens is it's an imprint basically of nursing. I mean, just sit with that for a second. So when you're an infant and you're hungry and you start crying and infants don't know anything. If you look at their brain scans, it's like, it's just, Things are firing in a very haphazard kind of a way, right? And there's, you can even see prefrontal cortical development is very minimal. There's nothing, there's, it's the consciousness. It's not that there's nothing there. I think they're, they're in this other realm, but they don't really have the ability to work things out and to hold on to memories the way that we do. But they feel a deep need and fear and hunger, and they have this instinct and immediately, without being taught, and Darwin talks about how this is interesting too, why does the baby know to nurse to begin with, right? But the baby reaches out to its mother and reaches out to a breast, right? And this is its first sense of, I am in need, and there's a being out there who is big, who will protect and love and fulfill me, right? And she will be reliable in this way, hopefully, right? And so in effect, the evolutionary meaning of the human kiss and the human hug is a lot like the psychological meaning of it. And what he's saying to us is that in effect, and I'm putting Darwin in my own words, but this is in his own scientific beautiful language, this is kind of where he's going. He says basically that a kiss and a hug, whether it's romantic or sexual or whether it's with your child or you know your grandmother, what you're doing is you're saying, nourish me, nourish me, right? And then you're receiving that nourishment. It's very beautiful, isn't it? It's wonderful to think about. Well, hopefully I have enticed you. That's just one of his books. All of his books that I've read so far, and I've probably read six, and uh, it's getting close to the main stuff that he wrote on purpose. There are people that will compile his letters and stuff. but. All of his books are just incredibly beautiful.
Um, origin of the species, now if you're very sciencey and you have a tolerance for a little bit of dryness, there's some good, beautiful stuff in there, Origin of the Species. Of course, that's a seminal work, and it's powerful, man. Um, but it's not for everybody, because it's quite long, okay? Uh, but I want to entice you a little bit about Origin of the Species, and I'll do it this way. To my reading, if, you know, first of all, when I was y'all's age, there were a lot of people in the United States who denied that evolution is real. It feels like internationally and in the United States, we've mostly moved past that point and we've done it in this generation. I was very shocked when the Pope said, evolution is real, guys. This happened several years ago. I couldn't believe it. I was so proud of it, right? Um, but if you can put yourself even to when I was your age and trying to communicate with people who couldn't understand this stuff or didn't believe it, right? Earnestly, because they believed the Bible and they had a connection with the Bible that maybe scientific people can't understand that connection in the same way that religious people can't understand the connection that scientific people have with somebody like Darwin. You see? The ignorance is mutual, right? Try to imagine what it's like trying to communicate about something so big and so beautiful and nobody can understand you. And they won't even read your book. I believe they wouldn't read it. Because if you read it, if you really cared, and some people, they would, they would lobby Congress to pass laws against teaching evolution in the schools. So there's people who, who care about it and think it's false, but they're not willing to open the book because I believe if they opened the book, Darwin would have persuaded them. Here's one small example of this. Um, there is a Portuguese island, and it's actually off the coast of, I think, Morocco. Like, I forget the name of the island, but geographically, it's closer to Morocco than Portugal, but you know how colonialism. But in any case, um, this, uh, this island, there are beetles. And there's, there's an interesting thing that happens that he noticed. He noticed that the beetles that were closer to the shore, the closer they were to the shore, some beetles stopped existing there, even though it's a quite a small island, right? And other beetles, other species of beetles, they didn't stop existing there, but what happened was is that the same species of beetle, their wings were smaller, they were more frail, they would break off when the wind hit them, okay? And oftentimes they were born without wings, and there were some species of beetles that if you go inland, they're winged and they fly, and you go right next to the beach, and that same species, it's continuous because you can just gradually just walk up the beach and you'll see that same kind of beetle, but they have wings, right? More and more, right? <laughs> you get close to the shore, and those wings are vestigial, which is like little T-Rex arms, right? You see? And he points out this. He says, you know, this is, a, this is clearly a demonstration of natural selection, which is his his uh, mechanism for his theory, right? He's saying, you know, the beetle goes to the, uh, goes close to the water, the closer he is to the water and he's flying around, the wind blows him into the water. So if you're inland, having wings is an asset because you can, you can flee danger. But if you're close to the sea, it's, it's a danger to you to have wings because you're likely to get blown into the sea. Right? You're much more likely to get blown into the sea than you are to get eaten by a predator that you can't escape from. Right? So just thinking about that, if you sit and think about that one image, and this is the origin of the species, 
highly condensed. It is filled with incredible arguments, very specific. But if you just sit with just that one image, it's hard to deny the sense that you're looking at evolution in progress, right? It seems to be one continuous species and the ones close to the, uh, to the water are becoming a new species. And they're doing it pretty quickly. You can see the continuum just by walking away from the beach. Isn't that fascinating, right? There are tons of stuff like that. I mean, just off the top of my head, I remember him speculating about how you see horses, sometimes they're, they're born with like a little bit of stripes going on, kind of like zebras. And he said, seems to me that they have a common ancestor, right? So that's a little bit about my personal experience reading Darwin. You know, like I said, he's, he's kind of like my best friend and I, I take his letters, uh, I read them, I try to read them as lovingly as he has written them because I think he's written them with a lot of care. And I believe that when he was alive, he just hoped in the depths of his heart that his letters would mean as much to me as they did to him writing them. And if you believe in life after death, which is up in the air, we don't know, uh, you know, he, he might be in this room, you know, hanging out with the, how many, seven, five, six, seven of us, you know, you don't know. Um, so quickly, uh, Shropshire, England is where he's from, 1809 to 1882. He had a happy marriage, as I said, he was, had lifelong illness. Um, I don't know what he had. There's been speculation, but he was in pain a lot. Um, you know, the most important event of his life, according to him, was his maiden voyage on the HMS Beagle, which I think is a cool name. I just thought about it today because I'm, like, I'm like, I like that name somehow, right? This morning as I'm preparing for this, you start to go deeper in your thought process. And I realized why that is. A beagle is a nose-driven animal. It's very instinctive. It's, you could call it almost like intuition because it, some very faint smell very far away He's alert to it and he goes off and he gets it, right? So the HMS Beagle, Darwin was 22 years old, 1831 was its voyage. I should check the time periodically. Let's put it right here so I know where we're at. Yeah. So he was quite a young man, sailed across the Atlantic. This is mostly from a Wikipedia article. Um, and then uh, carried out detailed hydrographic surveys. Uh, it's like, you know, they're map mapping the conditions of the ocean and noticing creatures and different things uh, around the coast, southern part of South America, uh, Tahiti, Australia. They end up circumnavigating the globe at 22. You can imagine with no technology how long that is, how arduous it is. He was totally into it. You know, his father thought he was wasting his life by going on this voyage. His father was against it. He also, Darwin, like some of you may struggle with, um, as a young man, he was highly distracted. You know, if you replace in your mind a cell phone, let's say, with, they don't exist, so what else do you do for fun? You know, shooting birds, right? Back then that was a common pastime, and drinking with your friends. As a young man, Darwin and his father were worried that Darwin was gonna be useless as he grew up, right? I think that's an important detail because there are people in this school that when I look into their eyes and I talk to them, and they will tell me this sometimes, but I can see it already, right? It's a dead giveaway. 
Because I was that kind of student. Look into their eyes, and they think that they're not going to amount to anything. And that's what Darwin thought about himself. See what I'm saying? So if you think that what's in you, you just don't have it in you to bring it out and to be the person you're meant to be, have some confidence in yourself and try a little harder because you'll end up failing just because of doubt before you even try. Okay? At a certain point, you turned around. He had a benevolent uncle and mentor figure in this relationship. Darwin's dad was a beautiful, wonderful man from what, I've read, from what I'm reading from Darwin, uh, but he was a bit critical, and he didn't want Darwin to go on this voyage. Darwin originally was going to be a minister, which is a more uh, stable job, and, uh, and it, also he was going to study some other things later. I forget what, geology or something. Somehow that was more stable in his dad's mind than a biologist. Now biologists are, that's reputable. Uh, so his dad said, you can't, you're not going to go on this voyage. Um, but if you can find one reasonable person to um, endorse your decision to go, then I'll, I'll let you go, right? And Darwin, and this shows you a cultural difference too, right? Didn't throw a fit like we do. He advised the crew and said, I'm not going. He advised everybody he knows, I'm not going. He wasn't going. His uncle was shooting birds with him one afternoon, and his uncle said, let me talk to your dad, and drove, I forget the amount of miles, it was like 35 miles, which back then was, in, was a lot of trouble, you know, um, to go and visit his dad right away to have a conversation with him. And Darwin knew that he was, his dad is honorable, he's going to do exactly what he said, and he knew that his dad admired the uncle. And so he was able to get on the beagle right away. It was good, right? Because his uncle said, "You, there is something about you. You need to do this. Your dad is missing it. You might have loving parents and they may, may miss something about you. You see, that's possible. So he goes off on the beagle. And, um, you know, there's a lot about that. He, one of his journals, one of the books that I've read, is just about that voyage. And it's incredible. I think I'll give you two vignettes from it. One is that one of the major ways that the epiphany, the big idea of evolution sort of came into his mind was noticing something called the, what is it called? It's called the Galapagos nautical iguana or ocean iguana or something like that, right? It's a sea iguana. And he saw something similar that he wrote about, I already told you about the bugs, but this is before then, right? This is long before he wrote this book. This is just when the idea is coming in. This is how it came to him. He saw iguanas that were on the mainland, not the Galapagos Island, but on the mainland that was separate, uh, the main continent, which is, uh, you know, like South America. It's like South Central America, right? That looked pretty much like it was the same iguana to him as these ocean iguanas. But they had a little differences, right? And here are some of the differences. A high, much higher tolerance for salt water. You know, if you, if you soak a regular, like, tree iguana in salt water for a long time, it's going to die, right? It'll just dry out and get unhealthy. It'll happen to us, too. Our skin's not designed to take that kind of punishment from the, from the pH of that salt, right? They also can hold their breath for a long time. 
There's differences in their snout that help them breathe a little bit, I think, when they stick their nose up. There's, I'm not exactly sure, but there's some differences that are subtle, and they, uh, I think they, their, their mouths are somehow a little bit more specialized for eating seaweed. And here's, here's this one's, I think, the neatest difference, and it's little. The tail, you know, most lizard tails, they're, they're tubular, right? Well, this iguana spends much of its time in the ocean. What do you think its tail was shaped like? So it really can pick up some good speed in the water, which will help it, uh, you know. And so Darwin, a story comes to him. And again, this isn't something that hypothesis testing will allow you to deal with at all, right? It's a good thing that we had big thinkers back in the day because scientists these days are often very small-minded. Not all of them are. Some of them are brilliant and they're big thinkers. But they have to, unfortunately, present themselves in this overly scientific, unbeautiful language that is, I think, harmful to the way that we really have to think about the world, right? And fit ourselves into it and communicate with each other. Um, but uh, these iguanas, in, in Darwin's mind, a story came to him, and the story was this. Somehow or another, there's a, a pregnant iguana that, despite all odds, swam all the way to this island. I don't know, man. Maybe it got on the back of a, of a helpful uh, uh, whale. Whales do weird things like that sometimes. They'll give people rides and they won't go under. You know, they do these things that are pro-social, that are strangely human. Though. You've seen a wild, I saw recently a video of a wild norwhale that was playing with a ball that somebody tossed out into the ocean and the norwhale would bring the ball back to the ship so that the guy would toss it again. This is a wild norwhale. The Norwell, for, for whatever reason, just realized these guys are not predators and they want to play with me. So, you know what I mean? So, Darwin's like, the thing that I don't know is how that iguana got to this island because he shouldn't have been able to swim that far. Maybe he was an uncommonly good swimmer. Maybe he got out there a certain way as chasing something and then uh, an ocean predator chased him out to sea and he outswam the ocean predator or something else. Whatever happened, there was a, probably a pregnant iguana that made it to this island somehow. Now that pregnant iguana wasn't well suited to eat what was there. It's a small island, there's not much there for it to eat. So in desperation, it starts eating some of the kelp under the water. This is not easy for this iguana to do, but it has children to feed, you know? I don't know, actually that's probably not right. I think when iguanas are born, they fend for themselves, don't they? But in any case, this occurred to him, it's like, what's happening is it's passing on its genes, and the, the, maybe two of the six children survive, the two that were better swimmers. And on goes the story, right? And in his imagination, this unfolded, and that was the epiphany, that was Darwin's epiphany. So that's one image from the HMS Beagle. Another image is that I just wanted to mention to you, because this is where <coughs> Uh, this class ends at what time exactly? 10 15. 10 15? 10 15. 10 Okay, good. Another image I wanted to leave is on a personal note, uh, and this is why I love him as a person. Right? Back then, uh, back then, most Europeans, even if they're not 
in the United States where slavery is extant. In the United States and South America and the Caribbean islands. Europeans, anybody who's white, pretty much uh, like the northern people in the United States, like they were very tolerant of slavery, they supported it in a lot of ways. They didn't care much about, uh, about black people who were enslaved, black people and other people who were enslaved or, enslaved or uh, people who were killed through genocide or persecuted. They didn't care, right? Very few people. It's hard to find records of people who really care, that sound like a modern compassionate person when you read what they write. If they write about this, most people are just disinterested. If they write anything, it's, a hor- it's horrible. You're like, oh, I used to love George Washington, and then I read this letter, and he's a, he's a total monster. He's a sociopath, right? You know what I'm saying is that there's a lack of sympathy. And Darwin is one of these rare people who was very sympathetic and got him in trouble because it's not me telling you it was the most important moment in his life, and it's easy for you to believe, but I want you to hear Darwin's own words. He says, The voyage of the Beagle has been by far the most important event in my life and has determined my whole career. Yet it depended on no... Uh, it, it depended on so small a circumstance as my uncle offering to drive me 30 miles to Shrewsbury. Right? So that encapsulates like what I was what I was telling you about the story there. And that leads into this. He almost didn't have that experience. And he didn't have it because he had a couple of traits that are pretty modern. He cared about black people. And he didn't mind letting people know. Right? Back then, that was really uncommon. This is what he says. I've cut, I've smitten some of it out, so it's not this long passage. Captain Fitzroy's temper was a most unfortunate one. We had several quarrels. For instance, early in the voyage at Bahia in Brazil, he defended and praised slavery, which I abominated. He told me that he had just visited a great slave owner who had called up many of his slaves and asked them whether they were happy and whether they wished to be free, and all answered no. They didn't wish to be free. What do you think about asking a bunch of slaves into your room and you ask them, oh, do you, do you want to be free? And then they say no. What do you think about that? It's, it's, not, it's not a truthful statement. They're not in front of your slave or you would say, oh, please let me go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Fear, right? Mm-hmm. This is what Darwin says. Then I asked him, perhaps with a sneer, right? So Darwin's disgusted. Sneer is a disgust response. Whether he thought that the answer of slaves in the presence of their master was worth anything. It's a very sarcastic response to his superior. He has no credentials. He's not really a biologist. He's just interested in biology. He was studying something else. Barely got on the ship to begin with. And this is the brass that he has. And I asked him perhaps with a sneer whether he thought that the answer, it's a very sarcastic way of putting it, of slaves in the presence of their master was worth anything. This made him excessively angry, and he said that as I doubted his word, we could not live any longer together. So, part of the, you go, if you keep reading, and this is the thing, do keep reading. So, I'm trying to entice you. Um, you know, he gets back in the captain's good grief. He doesn't do anything. The captain comes back to him and says, you know what, you're a good guy, I'll keep you on. But he almost missed the most important opportunity in his life because he was speaking out against slavery. That, to me, I think is pretty powerful. And the way that he speaks sounds so much like your generation, even more than my generation. 
You know, my generation puts up with a lot of nonsense and cosigns a lot of hypocrisy, much more than yours does in general. And, and if you read a lot of this stuff, you'll find tons and tons of stuff where he talks about slavery. And it's just much more heartbreaking than what I went to because he goes into detail, right? But that's like another whole lecture. Let me just, because we're, we're close to the end, so I want to make sure I give you... <laughs> oh, okay. So, so that's, that's a good overview. And now I want to do something a little bit fun. Let's let Darwin colonize you the way that he's colonized me a little bit, right? So this is a question Darwin asked. <laughs> Why do men have nipples? You ever wondered about that? You probably heard people ask that question. Why do men have nipples? Because they evolved from women. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now Darwin agrees with you. I don't I don't know exactly, and he doesn't know exactly, but basically what he says is he, he says that we probably came from an androgynous ancestor a long time ago. Okay? That kind of makes sense, right? At a certain point, the sexes diverge. And you see in some primitive organisms, what you have is you have hermaphroditism. So in, in certain organisms, they actually change gender. Even organisms as complex as frogs do this, right? In, in, the, in the absence of the gender that they need to procreate with, they will actually change gender. Why? <laughs> I love this one so much, and you'll have to forgive me. I take a little bit of delight, I'll call it Darwinian delight, in the controversial, okay? And I'm married to an Asian, so I get to ask these questions. Um, why do Asians have the, the all beautiful almond shaped eyes that they have? <laughs> Darwin never asked this. I, but again, he's colonized my brain. He's my best friend, so it's like, when I'm, you see, I don't know, if you're up at five in the morning, you'll see me jogging out here. I, I might be having a conversation with Darwin, Darwin in my mind about something. So anyways, why do Asians have that shape of eye, the almond shaped eyes? Simultaneously, I'll ask you another question that I think, that I think the answer to which is the same about Asians. Why do Asians mostly, and, and I say this on good authority, it's not always the case, and you'll be able to tell me if I'm right or wrong, right? Most Asians I know, they don't sweat all over their body. It's very hard to get them to sweat all over their body. They'll tend to sweat here oh. and here. Yes? Is that how you sweat? Is that your sweat profile? I'm pretty sweaty. You sweat all over. Some people, <laughs> some people do. Some people do. Some people do. But, but yeah, my mom doesn't. Yeah, she sweats here, right? So when it's a warm day, and we'll, my wife and I will go hiking, I will be drenched from head to toe, right? And she will be walking around going, wiping her nose with her shirt, right? I'm like, what? Oh, I wish I could do that. Like, it's amazing, because it's so uncomfortable to be wearing clothes and to be sweating. Why do Asians not sweat as much all over? Okay, skip to the end, because we're out of time. This is not now, this is my hypothesis. Uh, but my thinking is that if you're one of the first people that is out in the hot sun all day long, right? It's helpful to have eyes that block out the light better. Oh, uh, yeah, there's a big difference. Yeah, I haven't actually even looked it up. 
And the tall dogs thing is like because it's colder and then the air has to go ahead and warm up to freeze it. That's what I also read. I didn't know that. that see, see isn't this like she's smiling? This is interesting. <laughs> this is interesting stuff. And his theory is that is the gift that keeps on giving. And I think that the sweating thing is because they were wearing shirts longer than the animals. We're talking about five or six thousand years of pretty advanced civilization. Right? It's not helpful to sweat if you're wearing clothes. What do you do in a lot of countries in rural areas, in European countries that are rural, when it gets hot, what do you do? You take your shirt off, right? Well, if you do that for 6,000 years, you might actually evolve to sweat less on your body because it's not helpful if you're wearing clothes. The sweat is for the air to hit it and cool you down. I mean, totally my speculation, you know what I mean? But um, that's about it. Um, and I have so much more material because I love Darwin. I could have prepared for five days of talking to you guys. And I'd love to talk again and continue some of this stuff. But, uh, but anyways, thank you for your time. And I won't detain you. Enjoy your next class. And, uh, yeah. Thank you. Baby, your town is up. Thanks for listening. You can visit my site on the web where you can find show notes and resources or leave comments at blog.fazoro.com. Fazoro is spelled Foxtrot Alpha India Zulu Oscar Roger Oscar. You can also email me at fazoro at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you.